This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. And I've got Rachel Allen back with me for our third episode in the series that keeps growing. Now we're thinking it might be five episodes, but that's because there's just so much good things to talk about. It's true. Sexual health is expensive, right? We said that in the first episode. Right. So we got some questions uh, after our last episode or after, I don't know if it was after the last two episodes, but we got some questions from a male that were really great questions and some things to cover and to talk about. So today we're going to be talking about male sexual health and patriarchy and how all of that fits together. Yeah. So uh, I'm just going to read some of these questions because I think that they were really powerful and kind of good to hear that these questions were even out there after our last episode. I went back and listened to our episode and there was a lot of, this is how we've set it up and this is what what society currently looks like. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that with the next few episodes, we can kind of answer, so what now? Right. And that's what some of these questions are asking. So the first one, well, I'm going to skip around. So the first one that I think would be good for us to address is, although there are certain examples of overt criminal misbehavior as a result of patriarchy, there are a lot more subtle and unconscious things. The biggest problems can be caused by the unaware but well-meaning behavior of ordinary men and women who often don't realize they are making mistakes while harming others. How do we combat the unconscious false messages about sex? Yeah, I think that's a great question because I think after the Me Too movement, and there is a question more more specific to Me Too movement, Mm -hmm. but I think the Me Too movement found a lot of people having these discussions, and men particularly, saying, well, I don't want to be that. Right. So what do I do? And how, you know, if I'm not like the overt criminal misbehavior, right? I'm not sexually assaulting women or I'm not raping women and I'm not necessarily interested in that so then what like how do I become better evolved or more informed or more inclined towards sexual health that way right and so I think there's a lot of things that men can do and I think men are starting to have those conversations absolutely one of the things that when I talk to males that seems to come up over and over again is this idea of being like sexually attracted to someone versus like sexualizing them or observing them or kind of doing we would call them cat calls Mm -hmm. or I always say like I can walk in a room and tell you which guys are being creepers Mm -hmm. because you can just feel it like women are just hyper aware of that kind of predatory behavior most women are and so like sometimes without even recognizing that we're doing it like when we switch a female to an object especially to a sex object in our brain like women know that Right. And it's not, I think that those become like the more subtle things, right? Like when we say something that could be completely appropriate in one context, but extremely inappropriate in the other based on how we're saying it, our own body language, our own tone inflection. Those are the things to be aware of, I think. And I think both of us work with our clients saying, male clients particularly, saying it's not abnormal to notice somebody you find attractive. Right. Like, 
our brain is constantly scanning the environment. Right. And we're going to notice attractive people. We're going to notice unusual behaviors. We're going to notice things. It's part of our, like the survival skill, right? That's always scanning the environment. So there's a difference between noticing somebody who's attractive and sexualizing somebody. Right. Like a perfect example. If you see a female running on the sidewalk, she's not running for your benefit. Right. She's running for hers. So keep your eyes on the road. It's safe right. for everyone. Right. Well, and also, I mean, I think where do we cross those boundaries, right? Like noticing somebody that you think is attractive isn't necessarily a boundary violation. But when you start undressing them in your mind or wondering if they're married or wondering what they're like as a sexual partner or like now you're intruding into their personal life without mm-hmm. an invitation, without consent to do that. Mm-hmm. That's crossing a line and that would be moving them into a sexual object rather than a human being. Right. I think some of the other like more subtle things like I often like some of the things that we just kind of throw out there in society that I think can be really damaging is that boys will be boys. Uh-huh. There's a t-shirt out there that if I had a son, I would buy it for him. But it says boys will be well-behaved humans. Mm. And I really like that because the truth is, like I know a lot of really respectful, very appropriate men in my uh-huh. life. And... That group of men in my life were kind of like, wait, what? With the Me Too movement, because they wouldn't have even thought to treat women that way or thought to think about women that way. Uh But I do think that we have this, like, idea that, you know, when little boys are picking on girls and we say, oh, that's because he likes you. Right. No, that's inappropriate behavior, right? So, like, that would be some of that, let's teach them how to be appropriate, how Mm -hmm. to be... You know, maybe if they really do like this little girl, they're not picking on her Mm -hmm. and they're being nice and they're verbalizing that. Mm -hmm. As boys get older, we do a lot around, you know, boys are just sexual or they can't help themselves. Like we talk to boys about sexual things without actually talking to them about it. Like we'll make jokes about masturbation. Uh We'll make jokes about, like, the girl that likes them, which then puts a lot of focus on a boy's sexual prowess, which may not Mm -hmm. even be something that they're interested in. Right. And And it also does damage. I mean, we've worked with plenty of male clients who maybe were slower developmentally mm -hmm. there, right? And so maybe they got pressure from family or church leaders or friends about liking girls, but they were just interested in sports at that point. And it made them question their sexuality and like, why am I not interested in this? And it had nothing to do with just their development was like their interest was baseball or basketball or whatever. And Mm -hmm. that was still healthy development, but because they weren't sexual, they felt other, right? Like I'm not part of that male group and what does that mean about me? Right. Some of the like sex and violence that gets intertwined in our culture, Mm -hmm. like I think that that's one of those things that we have to be aware of. It's funny, again, you know, we talked about in the first episode that I'm the residential nerd. It's funny because when I first watched the movie Iron Man, Mm. like I was just as upset about the women dancing around Tony Stark on stage as I was the violence. 
Like, mm. and to the point that I kind of said, like, why do, why did we need that? We didn't need that. That didn't add to the movie. To which my husband responded, well, Tony's the playboy. And right. I, and I said, right. But every little boy wants to be Tony Stark. And, and you know, well, and this, this totally feeds into my podcast, but Tony Stark and Cap are both sides of a toxic patriarchy. Mm. Like, Cap thinks that women can't do things. And he falls in love with this woman who's very capable. And she kind of puts him in his place several times because he keeps kind of stepping over that line. And then Tony Stark has no regard for women or their feelings. And Pepper gets ran over multiple times. Uh She becomes the CEO of his company and he still kind of treats her as side fiddle. Right. And so I think in that regard... We just have a lot of those messages. Yeah. Right? Like, men are to be cool sexually, to dominate sexually. Like, Tony Stark and Captain America in the Marvel world are kind of presented as ideal men. Mm. And they're not my favorite. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I think the other message that we give to little boys often is, you know, if we talk about kind of these men rules that we're teaching little boys about as they're growing up. I talk to a lot of my male clients about emotions, Mm -hmm. right? And how part of their healing and part of their recovery is to claim their birthright to all of their emotions. Right. And often society boils that down to men can have sexual desire as an emotion and men can have anger as an emotion. And sometimes those two things fuse. Right. But even if they don't fuse, those are kind of the options we give men. Is you can you can have sexual desire and express yourself that way. You can be angry and express yourself that way. And I will tell men, like, you have been robbed. Because there is so many more emotions that bring a richness and a depth to you as a person that have been labeled as girly. Right? That's right. what girls do. And one of the worst things little boys can be called or men can be called is anything feminine. Be you know, One of the worst insults is to be called a girl. Right. And I think when we're teaching boys that you don't want to be a girl and girls do the emotions, we literally are handicapping little boys from growing up into mature, functional men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's one of those things that it is a very subtle thing right but like I've watched people tell five-year-old boys don't cry Mm -hmm. have you met five-year-olds they cry right a lot right they fall and skin their knee they're gonna cry yeah like it it and so developmentally that's appropriate but we start very very early for boys cutting that off Uh we also tend to force boys to channel things away from the arts Mm. Right? Like Mm -hmm. in our culture, which I think is super interesting. But in our culture specifically, we don't like boys to like paint or draw or um, really even be in theater or dance. Yeah, or theater or dance or uh, anything in that kind of art world. We don't, cooking, right? right? Which is interesting also because some of the greatest writers, uh, dancers, painters, sculptors, Actors are all men. Chefs, uh-huh. right? They're all men. That's not entirely true. There are there's a lot of them. There, uh, there's a there's lot a of huge men. percentage yeah. of them that are men. You know, like when you think of Michael, like when you think about the Renaissance, uh-huh. they're male artists typically. Yeah. I mean, um, also I talk to my girls about how 
anonymous throughout history was most likely female. Female, right. So we don't really have the females who were doing stuff at that point because they either went under a pen name or went under a male identity or were just anonymous. Uh, also, there's a whole like cult belief that Shakespeare was a female and mm. was written by a female and just gave it to Shakespeare to oh, put out there I'm in the world. I'm not aware of that. Okay. Anyway, so that being said, like I think... You know, we have this tendency to narrow that scope for men. And those are some of the subtle things that we do. Like, even in the way that we tell men to dress and the way that we tell men to show up. Like, one of the things here, particularly in our culture, that I think is really interesting is how, like, men have a uniform. Like Here in Utah, you mean? Here in Utah, specifically. And this happens kind of like culturally like in the southeast men also have uniforms i think it's a little bit more diverse but like you can tell that someone's from utah even from outside of the state by their haircut they usually don't have facial hair Mm -hmm. they're very polo and jeans or white button-up shirt like it's very it's a uniform Uh and there doesn't seem to be a lot of allowing for exploring for that for men and I think that that's true in different ways like where I grew up men were allowed to play with color a little bit more but it's still very much like this is how men dress like there's an expectation of that if you went too far one way then you were dressing effeminate Mm. and so you know there's just some of those things that we expect I think of men and often they're unspoken and yeah, but they're, they're very, very clearly understood. Yeah. I also, when I'm doing presentations, I'll talk about, I'll say, let's say that we've got, you know, maybe a, an 18 month old who's mastered when well, maybe not mastered walking, but they're walking, they're figuring out running. Not so good. Sometimes their head gets a little bit ahead of their feet or different things like that. So let's say that we're watching this 18 month old go down the sidewalk, they fall and they hurt their knee. And Let's make the gender of that 18-month-old a female. What typically is our response is to say, come here, mm-hmm. let me kiss it better, I'll give you a hug, right? Like whatever that is, we're literally inviting them into a relationship with us and telling them you need this connection. If you're feeling sad, you need a connection. Mm-hmm. And if we change the gender of that 18-month-old child to be in a male, oftentimes that alone will change the response, right? 18-month-old skins their knee, kind of gets upset, and we say, jump up, bud. You're okay. You're tough. You're strong. Keep going. Mm -hmm. And we're literally saying to him, you don't need connection. You don't need relationship. You're fine on your own. You've got this. Mm -hmm. And then we wonder why men struggle in relationships so much. Right. And I think if, if we changed our approach to that and we're more aware of how we are socializing and conditioning little boys, right? Mm -hmm. Little boys and starting to teach them that they also need relationships and that they are relational. Mm -hmm. And some of that means whether you're a church leader to them or whether you're a coach to them or you're their dad or something like that, like you are talking to them about how they feel. Mm -hmm. You are talking to them about what they're interested in and how that makes them feel. And you're giving them that permission to feel a wide range of emotions instead of really narrowing those emotions down. Right. Well, and I think even like being aware of how 
boys and girls interact, right? Like if you have a group of boys that you're taking somewhere, maybe you're teaching them how to cook. Maybe you're teaching them how to sew on a button uh-huh. or iron a shirt. Like I think that some of those things are completely appropriate for men to know. And that in and of itself helps promote some of that balance that is good for them, yeah. right? Like it takes away some of the stigma of like, oh, I don't do that or I can't do that and really gives them some self-efficacy. Uh-huh. Like I, I can do this and it's fine for me to embrace those things. And that's good. Right. That's great. Um, I remember being, um, when I was getting married and being at one of my bridal showers and it was the one that my husband's side of the family was throwing and, you know, they were kind of getting to know me and asking me some questions. And his one aunt asked me something about like, what day is going to be your ironing day? And I was so thrown off by that question. I was like, my what day? And she was like, ironing. And I was like, you mean ironing clothes? And she was like, yeah. Yeah. And I said, I don't think I'm going to have a day for that. Like, if I need something to wear and it's wrinkled, I'll iron it. And she was like, but what about my spouse? And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure he knows how to use an (laughs) iron. Like, I'm not, like, if he's in a hurry and something needs to be ironed, I don't mind ironing. Mm -hmm. So I'll like, oh, I'll help you out. But my husband also does that for me sometimes. Like, Mm -hmm oh, you need this ironed? I've got a minute. I can go iron this, right? Like some of those very stereotypical gender roles that we perpetuate, I think we have to start questioning those. And and I think men have to start owning some of those because it's good overall for their balance and their well-being if they can be a functional person who knows how to do those things. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. My great-grandmother was the sassiest woman in my life. Like, I just love her so much. But when we were little, my dad was complaining that my mom never cooked. And my mom had a full-time job. She was a terrible cook. She's gotten much better now. But she just didn't learn how to cook. That was not in her, like, wheelhouse of things Mm. that she really desired to learn. She doesn't enjoy it. Like, to cook is to get food. That is kind of her thing. But my dad actually enjoys cooking. And But he was complaining to my grandmother about the fact that my mother never cooked. And she said, well, you know how to cook. Mm. And he said, yeah, I do. And he was like, yeah, so she should, right? And she said, then I don't think she needs to. If you can do it, you can make your own food. (laughs) It was one of those, like, if you're hungry, go cook it. Yeah. And it's funny because we joke about that in my family a lot, but I think that that's actually what started shifting that idea for my dad and really kind of opened those conversations up in our family a little bit. I wouldn't say that we're great at it, Mm. but my grandmother was very much against gender roles. Like whoever had the capacity to do it, you do it. Right. I've talked to people before about me as a parent and sometimes like, I don't know what I, you, you know, how I would be different as a parent had I had like two girls, two boys. Like, Mm -hmm. I have four girls, right? And and so I think my girls have had a unique experience being the only gender we had, really. And so, like, if we needed help on something or if my husband was doing a project and he needed help moving something or lifting something, like, he came and got me and he came and got the girls as they got older because that's who was available to him, right? Mm -hmm. So he was just like, come help me do this. And we would go help him do that. And that's how my girls grew up. They didn't know, right? They weren't getting some of those gender messages about what girls do and what boys do because this is what we had. Mm -hmm. And even in my family growing up, like we didn't really fall into some of the 
stereotypical gender roles either. And I think part of that is we had a single mom. Mm -hmm. And so we had three boys and three girls and we rotated mowing the lawn as much as we rotated cooking dinner and doing dishes because with six kids and a single mom, like everybody's going to have to be involved in that. So, you know, there might've been part of me who didn't stick to some of those gender roles because that's not how I was raised. But I think also it was, I mean, my girls have talked to us, my husband and I before and said it was a little bit startling when we started to get those gender roles, the older we got, like, you know, young, young women, young females, right? Like, 10, 12, 13, Mm -hmm. that, because it just wasn't what they grew up with those messages. And all of a sudden they were being told, well, girls can't do this and girls can't do that. And, and they were like, what, who, according to who, because in my family, we do all of those things. Right. And so I think also with boys having, you know, whether it's with girls or whether it's with boys, I think we really have to look at the stereotypes that we traditionally have held mm-hmm. and what the limits of them are in our current world. Yeah, that kind of leads to this next question, which I think is really powerful. It's how do I examine an unhealthy history of patriarchy in my own life and adjust for me psychologically as an adult to promote a more healthy sex life? So I think that this is one of those like, one, you've got to get really comfortable with male privilege, mm-hmm. right? There's just some things that men need to be aware of. Uh, and I ran a, a men's group a couple of years ago, and we were talking about privilege. And privilege is one of those things that when you, it's a buzzword, right? Like mm-hmm. you throw it out there and all of a sudden, like, you've thrown gasoline on a fire. But we were specifically talking about male privilege, and I was the only female in the room. And a couple of them kind of balked at that, uh, to which I responded, okay, so what is it that you guys do every day to keep yourself safe? Mm-hmm. Like, what are your thought processes? Like, what are your, what do you do? And I think they said, like, lock their doors and, you know, make sure that the lights are t- turned on at night or something. And then I started listing off, like, so I don't go to the grocery store late at night. I don't get up and go running in the dark. I don't... Uh, when I do go to the grocery store and it's in the evening, I make sure I park close to a light. Here at work, I make sure I park mm-hmm. where we have lights outside. I carry my keys between my fingers. I in carry case. my keys between my fingers. I check the back seat of my car. I get dressed to make sure that I'm not too revealing or too out there for whatever that is. Depending on what time I'm going to the gym, I pay attention to what clothes I'm wearing so I'm not soliciting unwanted whatever. I'm, you know, very aware of the times that I go to the gym, of the times that I go to the grocery store, of, you know, just life. I'm very aware of whether or not there are going to be people working with me in my office and what time I'm getting out of my office and, and things like that. And so, like, there was a list, right? And there are huge lists that women go through on a daily basis to quote unquote, keep themselves safe. And that was just one mm-hmm. thing, right? Like that was, that's just one version of male privilege that most men don't even think about. Mm-hmm. And truthfully, the thing that would keep us safe is men behaving well, mm-hmm. right? Like it's usually not women perpetrating on women. It's usually men perpetrating on women. So just some acknowledgement 
that that's what that looks like. And it doesn't mean, right, because I know in, in that particular group that you're talking about, there was some, like, some of the men that balked at this, like, they definitely didn't enjoy all the privileges white men can, right? right? They definitely had a lot of trauma in their life, and they were looking at it that way. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, one of the things that, for them, they started to become aware of is just some of the things they take for granted that they don't really even have to consider or think about. And so while they may not enjoy all of the privilege they could, they enjoyed more than some people simply based on their gender or their race or whatever. Yes, So I think the other thing too is, and this is always my favorite when I'm talking to adult men, is the assumption that women can't think for themselves, that they don't have their own opinions, or that they don't care about sex. Like that's 90% not true. And Mm -hmm. if that's what your partner is responding, she may not have language for that. She may be in some sexual anorexia, which we'll talk about in the next Mm -hmm. episode. But like your partner as an adult male, your partner should be your equal. Mm -hmm. You're not above them. You're not below them. There shouldn't be this folly for power. Your partner should be your partner. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking specifically towards heterosexual males because I think we have the hardest time understanding that in heterosexual relationships. One of the things John Gottman actually talks about, and I can't remember what book it is, it just left my head, but he was talking about like in order for relationships to be healthy and enriching, like males have to be able to take influence from their female partners. Um, And that it wasn't statistically significant if females accept influence from uh their partners because they do. We're conditioned to do that, we do that all the time. But if males accept influence, it statistically was significant to the overall health of that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is huge. Like, So I think that that holds a big piece of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up in a religion that is conservative, very patriarchal. One of the things that really bothered me is that, you know, in, in this particular religion, once a boy is hitting about 12, he is never going to have another female leader in Mm -hmm. his life right and what is that saying to him right like intentional or not that boy is learning something about who he listens to and who leads him and much more often in religion in my religion it did happen where women could lead women and men could lead women but only men could lead men and again that is very uh reminiscent of that patriarchal structure Mm -hmm. so for men who are you know, listening to women, there was a study done, it was in the STEM field, the science and technology field, and they they submitted um, an application. And it was the same application. One was under the name Jennifer, and one was under the name John. And the resume was exactly the same, right? And Jennifer's resume was deemed to not be as credible or uh, what they were looking for. But John's resume, they really went after him and offered him a nice salary to try to recruit him. And all that had changed was the gender um, name, right? Like Mm -hmm. Jennifer versus John. And so I think this still happens in the workplace. It's not uncommon. And I think if you're trying to see it and become aware of it, you will start to see it Mm -hmm. because it's not rare. And so, you know, if you're sitting in a team meeting and a female may offer something 
and nobody really picks that up and does much with it. But then a couple minutes later, the men says some version of what she had just said, and it gets a lot of traction, and it gets talked about, and he's credited for the idea, mm-hmm. and she's just like, oh, okay, never mind. Or she may not even be aware that, like, hey, that was my idea. You know, we know that both men and women interrupt women more often than men get interrupted. So I think being aware of that. Also, the whole mansplaining thing. And I know men sometimes get really defensive and offended um, when we're talking about mansplaining. But it's a thing. <laughs> and and when you start looking for it, right, mansplaining is just that basic, like a woman's talking about something. She knows what she's talking about. And then he picks up and tries to explain it to her as though she doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, on the internet, there's been a lot of examples where, uh, what was it, one of the women who, like, she was a scientist and had done this whole project and some oh, guy was mansplaining it to her. Please explain this to me. Yeah. It's the, it, it's a book, but she mentions that she's writing, she just wrote a book about whatever the subject is, and he goes on about this great book yes. that he yes, just yes. read, and she should read it because it was great, and her friend goes, that's her book. Yeah. And he couldn't even believe. He couldn't like wrap his head around the fact that he was talking to the author. Yeah. And just kept telling her about this book. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, when you start to look for those things, you will see them. I think that's one of the best ways to start to become Mm -hmm. aware of it is to start to put it on your radar and start to look for it. Well, and I think so me and my husband have talked about this quite a bit because my husband actually does take a lot of female influence and I think he's really good at that Uh and and one of the things that shows up for him he actually started being aware of how many times women actually spoke into his life versus males um and he like even when we're having a conversation he's very aware of like the women in the room so if women aren't talking, he will specifically say, what is your thought on this? Mm-hmm. We've been in meetings where women have kind of sat silently about the, the subject matter that is really important to them. And he will look to them and say, what is your thought on this? This is kind of your bread and butter. This mm-hmm. is, you know, your belief. There are times that people will ask him questions and he will immediately defer to me. Mm. Rachel can answer this question better than I can, which I don't know Like, I'm so used to that, but I don't see that in other relationships very often. Mm -hmm. And I will often see husbands talk for their wives, Mm. which is not a partnership. It's not a partnership, but there's also some of that, like, be aware, just just Mm -hmm. call some awareness to that. And I know that we're talking a lot about, like, social constructs, but all of that plays into sexuality, Mm -hmm. right? Like, if you can't allow your partner to be equal and present in the world, then she's not going to feel equal and present in sexual health. Mm -hmm. That's those things carry over. So bringing some awareness to that, I think is really powerful and important. One of the things that I think is really powerful in like in the bedroom specifically, since we're talking about sexual health is being aware of what your partner wants and needs. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not just, about your needs or your wants or your desires, but what does that look like for her? Mm-hmm. What does she need to even get there, right? Like, And the fact that sh- she may at first not know, mm-hmm. you know, whether she doesn't really know what her needs are or is uncomfortable saying that because she doesn't mm-hmm. want to be that bad girl. And you've got to 
still say in your head, I don't know. She hasn't answered this for me. And so I'm not going to fill in the blank for her. I'm just going to bookmark this and I'm going to give her time and space and we can continue to talk about this because I can't presume to know what she doesn't know. Right. I think there's that, I mean, there's that scene in When Harry Met Sally when she had fixed the orgasm mm-hmm. in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And it, that was such a powerful scene and, and yet it still happens. Like women still fake their sexual desires because they either don't know what their sexual desires are. They aren't comfortable with that. They want to make their partner feel Mm -hmm. good, but faking doesn't actually make partners feel good. Well, and you and I, I mean, we, we do get, it's not the majority of our clients, but from time to time we do get clients in who have never had an orgasm. Right. And their partner does not know that about them. And we have to break that apart and look at that for them and talk to them about that. And how do you bring that up with your partner? And and uh, yeah, so I, I think for her to fake it is not going to work for him. And it is for him to look at that and say it would be an insult if she doesn't show up as who she is. Mm-hmm. Right? That's not good for me either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think also one of the things I was going to say about this is, you know, when it comes to the male-female dynamics... I think most often for men, you have gotten messages about knowing more, being able to do more, whatever that looks like, right? And so you're going to have to be checking yourself on that. Mm -hmm. And I will say, I think my husband's fairly good. He grew up in a house of boys. He had one sister. And then as he's, you know, created his family with me, it's a house of girls. (laughs) So he's kind of went from one extreme to the other extreme. And He's, I think he's done a fairly good job of like finding the balance for him. And yet he will even say, sometimes still I make a mistake or I don't get it. And he's open to me talking to him about that and him seeing that. And it was a couple years ago, one of my friends had called and confided something to me. It was a neighbor. And at the time she had asked me, like, I'm not, like she called me because she knew I was a therapist and she specifically wanted some advice about how to handle this situation with her children. And her and I had talked on the phone. She had told me like, you can tell your husband, but please do not tell anybody else right now. Like Mm -hmm. I want a day with my children before this becomes common knowledge in the neighborhood. And so I called my husband. I was actually out of state at a training. And so I called my husband and just said, Hey, here's the deal. Here's what happened. She doesn't want anybody to know. And particularly she did not want the local ecclesiastical leader to know. And there were some reasons why he was pretty, you know, he took his leadership role very seriously and thought he knew better than women. And this neighbor was a single, single mom. And so um, I said, you know, she knows eventually he's going to need to know, but she doesn't, she's not prepared for that today. And, you know, so we, he and I kind of talked about it. I got off the phone. I went back into my training. I had stepped out to take the phone call, went back into my training And maybe a half hour later, I get a text from my husband saying, uh, so the ecclesiastical leader knows. And I was like, what? How? Like, you and I are the only people who know. And he said, well, her next door neighbor, she had told him. So he knew, I knew, my husband knew, and then the the neighbor knew, right? And I said, but how did that involve an ecclesiastical leader? And he said, well, and I could tell he was kind of like, wait, maybe, maybe I made a mistake. Like, It made sense at the time, but like he could tell by my response of like, what? That he was like, oh, maybe I messed up, right? And so he said, well, I was leaving for work and I saw her next door neighbor 
And he walked across the street and said, hey, did you guys hear? And he said, yes, I did hear. And this neighbor thought, like, we need to let the ecclesiastical leader know, like, she needs that comfort or guidance or whatever. And, you know, my husband knew what I had told him. And he was like, well, I mean, I think eventually, and he said, and he was just like, no, like he would want to know and he would feel bad if he didn't know right away, right? If we knew and he didn't know. So this neighbor had called the ecclesiastical leader. And I said to my husband, why do the two of you think you know better? She's 40 years old. She has four children. Why do you think that the two of you know best for what she needs and what is best for her when she specifically said, this is not what I want. And, you know, he was kind of like, uh, I think because I just felt so uncomfortable with it and I wanted to do something. And I was like, yeah, that's about you. That's not really about her. And he was like, yeah, but I don't like, what do I do with these feelings? And I said, well, you get to sit with them and you could talk to me about them or Like, you just have to let them be there. Like, why are you chasing them away by trying to fix this or do something? Like, yeah, these feelings are big and they should be. And fixing this for her or telling somebody for her isn't actually going to fix anything. That's Mm -hmm. just the two of you not knowing how to sit with these emotions. And so you're like coming up with what you think the solution is, but really that's about the solution because you are both uncomfortable. Right. And I mean, my husband was like, oh, I totally get it. I see it. Like, what do I do? And I was like, well, I mean, that train's kind of rolling at this point. And he did, you know, to his credit, he, he got off the phone with me and he called both the ecclesiastical leader who was a neighbor and he called this other neighbor and was like, we messed up guys and this isn't okay and we shouldn't have done this in the first place. And he said both of them were like, oh, you're being too hard on yourself. Don't worry about it. And he said, I really, he's like, I don't think I changed their mind, but I really did say, no, we had no business going around her. We had no business going around her. Yeah. And I I think it's one of those, like, you know, to me, I appreciate my husband's efforts. Mm -hmm. I know he's not going to be perfect. But he's willing to look at it and say, I messed up. Or, wait a minute, why are you responding this way? Tell me what I'm missing. And he will hear feedback from me. Right. And again, going back to accept influence, he will accept that influence and then look at himself and say, I made a mistake. Yes. Which I think is huge. Yeah. Um, so the next question is in the area of hashtag me too. Many good men have looked back on their behavior in the past and said, hmm, maybe I wasn't active in a positive way there. How do the average good men need to change their behavior to promote better sexual health for everyone? So I have a thought on this. One, I don't know that, like the term good men in this context is one that I struggle with, I think, because I think that men are generally good human Mm -hmm. beings we have conditioned men sexually to behave badly Mm -hmm. and you have the extremes of that which is the harvey weinstein the bill cosby bill cosby there's a whole list of things the doctor Mm -hmm. nassar Nassar. larry nassar yeah nassar i can't even remember his name because i just like the judge so much (laughs) but you know like so you have like those kind of extreme cases Uh but we also have to look at like one in 16 women have 
unwanted sexual experiences their first time. Right. One in five women will experience sexual assault in their lifetime. This is not right. just Harvey Weinstein. And one and in Nasser. three experience sexual abuse yes. as a child. Yes. So, like, when we're looking at the numbers, and we know that the majority of those perpetrators are men, that's not just the Cosbys and the Nassars mm-hmm. and the Weinsteins. That's a lot of men. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that men are evil or men are trash or men can't control themselves. I actually believe very opposite of that. But what I do think is that men have to be accountable in those little ways, mm-hmm. right? Like, And oftentimes it's going to have to take men being accountable to men. Yes. Because men aren't at a place that they overwhelmingly will let women hold them accountable. Right. And so it has to be the men who are holding the men accountable. And that means speaking up and calling it out and not just going along with the behavior. Right. I mean, like that's like, regardless of what you think about our current president, the whole locker room talk Mm -hmm. fiasco, like one of the things that's so appalling about that is that when men are by themselves, they make women feel very unsafe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if that is the way that men talk in locker rooms. Now, I've talked to a whole lot of men that are like, that is definitely not how men right. talk in locker rooms. Or that's not how we talk in locker rooms. But that whole concept of like when men are alone, you get a pass. I don't mm-hmm. know that you get a pass. So I think that we start talking about like that's not appropriate. Right. Or that the men who would be calling that out, who are feeling uncomfortable in those conversations and in those situations, the men who would be calling that out would somehow feel less than. Right. Or that like they would be rejected as not being one of the guys. Right. If they were to say, hey, that's not cool. Right. And so I think that that's some of it. I've talked to men who are like, especially older men, like people you know, older than me, I've talked to them and they're like, if this was in my teenage years, like if Me Too had happened in my teenage years, like I would be one of those guys. To which I respond like, then you need to figure that out. Like you're going to have to wrestle with that because up until this point, you thought that wasn't a problem. Right. And now there's a problem. And if you raise boys and then if you raised grand boys, what message, what damage have you done? Right. What do you need to set right? I think was it at the time, I think you and I were doing a men's group at the time of the Me Too movement. And it became a topic for a couple of weeks, not that we brought it up, Mm -hmm. but the men started bringing it up. Yes. And it was some really powerful conversations that the men in that group had as they were trying to look at that piece of like, wait a minute, I've done some of those things. And I sometimes take a lack of a no as a Mm -hmm. yes when I'm, you know, pursuing a woman or when I'm, yeah, like I've done some of those things. And... They were asking the right questions. Mm -hmm. They were willing to reflect. Like none of them said like, no, that's not you, right? Even as uncomfortable as it was, most of the men stepped up and said, I've done this in one form of another and it's making me uncomfortable Mm -hmm. now. Well, and I loved what they kind of came up with after that. They were talking about like, so part of the 12 step group is to make an amends, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's one of the steps. And this group of men were familiar with the 12 steps. And one of the things that kind of came out of that group is like, okay, if we can't make amends to our, to these past women, because some Mm -hmm. of them, we don't even know who they are. Like, how do we make a living amends? How do we Mm -hmm. move forward and change our lives? 
and be more aware and conscious of those things. And I think some of it just came out with like, maybe we talk to women about mm-hmm. that, right? Like, And maybe we make financial donations to women's causes right. or shelters or whatever that looks yeah. like. Yeah, maybe we talk to boys if we are over boys mm-hmm. about what consent actually looks like and what's appropriate and not appropriate. And she can say no, and mm-hmm. that's not necessarily a reflection on you, but it's a reflection on what she mm-hmm. needs and wants, and we respect that. Like, So there was some huge pieces that came out mm-hmm. of that that I think were incredibly beautiful. And most of those men took that to heart yeah. and, and have continued to do Yes. That. Well, and I had one of the men who was in that group was in a position in his company of hiring, right? And so the admin, after the Me Too movement broke and wasn't like, call me down, was still gaining steam for a couple of months, you know, they all kind of talked about, it was all men at the executive level, and they talked about, uh, we just can't hire women. And I remember him coming into a session and saying, this is the discussion. I didn't say anything, but I need to talk to you about how, how, what do I say? And how do I go back in and say, hey guys, that's not cool. Like you can't just decide we're not going to hire women because we can't change men and we can't punish women for speaking up about mistreatment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had a really good conversation in that session about what he could do and what words he could use and how he could mm-hmm. frame that to go back in and make a point and be heard from the other men. Which it, it's interesting because as the Me Too movement kind of has happened, like I have heard kind of that response um, in different ways, right? Like if the women were just staying at home with the kids like they were supposed to, we wouldn't have this problem. Mm-hmm. If, you know, women weren't so ambitious and pushing for positions that are dominated by men, we wouldn't have this problem. And to which usually my response is, if men would just stop mistreating women, like we wouldn't have this problem. Uh-huh. And and I think that some of that too is recognizing there is a difference and there's a huge difference between being friendly with a woman and being sexually inappropriate with right. a woman. Right. Right. Like being friendly doesn't make people feel uncomfortable. In general, we kind of like that. Mm-hmm. We like people to be nice. We like people to, you know, show respect and mm-hmm. be courteous and say thank you. But that also comes from acknowledging what they're saying, mm-hmm. recognizing them as equals. If those things are happening, then we're in relationship. But if mm-hmm. you are over women in, in a position of power, you do need to be aware of what you're doing and how you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And so, how that message is being carried out down through the ranks, right? Yes. So the next question, and it, this kind of ties to, to the last question, so I, I kind of want to wrap it in together, is if I'm a youth leader in a church, how do I teach about sexual health in the face of patriarchy? So I think that there are two ways to do this, and specifically right now we're talking about males. I would like to bring this question in next week when we're talking about females too. As well, yeah. I do think that this gets really complex if you're working as a youth leader in a church because we like for our youth leaders to talk about sex in a very like shut down, don't do it kind of way. Or we we know you kind of have those desires, just please try to contain them until you're married. Yes. And so like, 
I think that youth leaders get the short end of the stick in what parents will, quote unquote, allow you to say. Mm -hmm. Because typically in conservative, patriarchal societies, we don't want anybody talking to our kids about sex except us, but we don't talk about sex with our kids either. Or if they're going to talk to them about it, just say don't. Just say don't. Right. Um, And we see that across the lines in terms of like what sex education looks like in schools in conservative states versus more liberal states or where churches are more Mm -hmm. powerful, tend to be more conservative and abstinence-only sex education tends to be at the forefront of that. So I will recognize and I have complete compassion for if you are in a youth leader position, you are in a sticky situation. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot that you can do to empower parents to talk to their kids and what your state of um, like being relational with the parents is super helpful, I think, in that and saying like, look, this is what healthy sexuality is. This is what we're trying to teach them. This is what we're trying to present. We would love for you to promote this at home, mm-hmm. right? I think that curriculums are great for that. Gail Dines has some great information around how to talk to your kids about consent and mm-hmm. porn and, and things like that. That being said, I think that they're specifically for males. I think that we need to have a lot more focus on general respect. Mm-hmm. Just respect one another. Respect the females in your life. And not because they're your sister in Christ or not because they're the daughters of God. And not beca- like because they're human. Because they are equal people that deserve respect. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really powerful. Believing females when they come to you is huge. Like there is normal sexual teenage behavior. Mm-hmm. Just recognize that, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's some of that, but being sexually inappropriate or being dominating, I know that you have a few like experiences where males were kind of being inappropriate mm-hmm. and you had to kind of put that in your line because you did work with you for a while. Right, right. And I mean, there was one I'm thinking of particular, I was at a youth activity as a leader and both boys were there, girls were there, um, male leaders were there, female leaders were there. It was a boating activity in the summer and uh, we were sitting around talking and I happened to be kind of the only female sitting there at the time. I was kind of making some sandwiches and they were waiting for the sandwiches to be made. And so they were kind of sitting there and there were a couple of male leaders and then a couple of boys, like 16, 17 year old boys. And the one was talking about this date that he had planned and he and a friend and how great it was and how funny it was. And they literally like kidnapped the girls and made them think that they were going to be raped. And I mean, I'm, I'm like just overhearing this. I'm like, on fire, right? And I'm like, what in the hell are we doing? And I kind of looked at the three male leaders. They didn't say anything. And this kid just kept talking about it. And I, you know, I stopped making my sandwich and I just turned to him and I said, I hope the parents of that girl have never let her go on another date with you again. And he was like, what? And I said, I hope her parents taught her that that's completely inappropriate and she should never go out with you again. And he like was offended at what I said. And he was like, well, no. He's like, I didn't actually rape her. And I said, right, but you thought it was funny to make her think that. And I said, that is such an inappropriate thing for you to do. 
I would hope her parents would take a firm stance in that and say never again and that you would learn how inappropriate it was. And the three male leaders kind of standing there, like two of them kind of shifted like, oh, this is getting uncomfortable. And the one kind of backed me up and was like, yeah, she has a point. Like, I don't think I would want my daughter to have that experience on a date. And so, you know, fortunately, one of them kind of joined in with me, but I kind of had to lead that. And and I think just having those conversations, like I think sometimes male leaders in the church get a reputation for playing basketball and hanging out and getting ice cream. And that's kind of what they do with the boys. Mm -hmm. And I think we're missing so many things if that's what we do. Even if we just go camping, even if we, you know, do work on scout stuff, like whatever you're doing, if you're not bringing in conversations, if you're not bringing in the emotions of that, if you're not even talking about these relationships and the relationships among the boys, right? Because all of this stuff is then transferable to other relationships Mm -hmm. that they get into. Yeah. And I think too, specifically like my, like we've worked with youth before. And one of the things that we kind of do is like lead by example when we're working with youth, Uh like me and my husband and I teach as much as he does. Right. Mm -hmm. I speak in front of, I mean, not as much as he does, but like there are definitely times that I present things that are really important and really powerful. And I think it's important having that kind of experience. I honestly think it's great to have females come in and talk to males about female sexuality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, so that they know that they're not. Mm -hmm. And and I think if that's happening, the the male leaders in the room, how they're responding to Mm -hmm. that, if they're on their phone, if they're not really paying attention, all of that is saying, you don't really need to listen to this. This isn't really for us. Right. You know, I think it's helpful for male leaders to engage, to ask good questions. I also think too, just in my experience with teenage males, they're desperate for good information. Mm -hmm. They don't want crappy relationships. Right. They don't. And they want to know how to do it correctly or how Mm -hmm. to do it right like I think just presenting that like look this is what consent looks like and again consent is a yes is a yes Mm -hmm. anything after a yes isn't isn't a yes and 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 so I think as a leader if if a boy if you know a boy likes a girl and he asks her out and she says no you don't tell him to keep trying right like, you tell him, like, well, we respect that. that's unfortunate. How do you feel about that? Whatever. And you've got to move on. Sometimes we like people that don't like us back. Mm-hmm. That's part of human nature. Right. We have to talk And you don't just keep on. going to try to wear her down and make her like you. Yeah. Um, I think another, like, example of that that I think is really, really powerful is teaching boys specifically what it means to take a no and how to do that mm-hmm. gracefully. Um, I don't know that we... Like, we teach men to be pushy and pushers and kind of get their way. And close the deal. And close the deal. And I think that teaching guys how to be respectful in that way is really powerful. I also think it's super important to teach kids that life needs a balance, right? Like, of course your hormones are raging right now. Of course sex feels like the most important thing. It's not. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to put more focus on that than is absolutely necessary. So maybe we talk about like, how do we keep that in balance? Mm -hmm. How do we deal with that imbalance? Um, And that's going to be, and here's the thing, like healthy sex is not always what the church teaches. Again, like I think that 
I, I don't know that masturbation is necessarily a bad thing mm-hmm. and can teach us a lot of really great things about our own bodies. Doing it mindfully, doing it in a med- meditative kind of practice, doing it in a way of respecting ourselves, respecting our body and respecting others can be very powerful. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we can actually talk about that in churches yet, hopefully one day, but we do have this vague idea that like masturbation is wrong, but there's actually not a whole lot of scriptural precedence for that. Mm-hmm. Or even like research that backs up backs that, that up. causes problems. Right. And in fact, like sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, I think having open and honest conversations about like you're a teenager and you're probably going to masturbate. And instead of, you know, Again, like mm-hmm. I would empower parents to talk to mm-hmm. about their kids to yeah. this too. And and where's the healthy balance? Right. Right? Like if you're masturbating to manage your emotions, probably not the healthiest thing. Yeah. Right. If you're, if you're depressed and you're you're masturbating to feel better, again, we've got some other issues that are going on and you're using this sexual thing to cover or to regulate that. Right. So, yeah, and I think you and I kind of talked about this earlier. Like, part of this is you have to be really comfortable with your own Mm -hmm. sexuality. It's not super helpful to be an adult and be uncomfortable about sex. Right. Because children, especially teenagers, are desperate for right information. They're desperate to have these conversations. And if you're like... I don't know, and that's awkward, yeah. and ha, ha, ha. Or if you're super uncomfortable, they're going to pick up on yeah. that. I mean, you and I both have the experience where we're having a conversation, and, you know, we say the words, and people are like, oh, my gosh, that, like, rolls off your tongue. And we're like, I say this every day, all yeah. the time. Yeah, it is super comfortable for me. So mm-hmm. I can talk about these things. I can ask questions. I can say things. And I don't get uncomfortable and the people I'm talking to about it don't get uncomfortable. And I think that that's the thing that hits me kind of hard a lot of times is like I will be in a conversation and I feel that other people are getting uncomfortable and then I'm like, wait, is this not normal? Like I start Mm -hmm. to like kind of balance myself and kind of have to ask like, wait, am I saying anything inappropriate? No, no, this is all scientific. These are all appropriate. Adult words. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, I I also think using proper language is really important mm-hmm. with teens. Like, don't use slang. Don't try to be right. cool. Don't try to get in their their space. Like, use appropriate language. Use appropriate mm-hmm. terms. Let them come up with the slang. Let them be that, you know. But like as the, an adult, you use the proper terms. Yeah. As an adult, use proper body parts. And just to be clear, when you're talking about the female anatomy, the vagina... <laughs> is the actual cavity. The vulva Pretty is much the, hidden. Yeah. You <laughs> Not something people no are going to see. No one ever sees that unless they're really, you know, your doctor. It's the vulva that's actually kind of the whole female genitalia. Like what, what we see on the externals. Yeah. 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 So let's start using that language appropriately too because like we make jokes about vaginas all the time or teenage boys do. It's, it's not even the same thing. And I think that we need... To get comfortable yeah. with that. Like, boys have more than one sex organ. Boys have them more than one sex body part. Yeah. So do girls. So let's be aware of that. Let's start mm-hmm. using that language. Let's let's make that common. Well, and, and also I think let's use it appropriately because right. it can be joked about in every, right. in every situation, right? And I've had, I mean, several, several of my kids are in their 20s now. 
I've had a lot of teenagers over at my house. I hear how they talk. I don't get offended by it, but I usually will say like, hey, why are we saying that word? Like, Mm -hmm. or why are we making this instance a sexual thing with the language that we're joking? Mm -hmm. And it's not that I don't think that I change them and they don't do that outside of my presence, right? I know that they still (laughs) use those terms outside of my presence. But in my presence, I want them to think about it. Mm -hmm. Like, we're not talking about anything sexual, and yet you just said something. Like, for example, I'll give you one. Like, um, one of my daughter's friends was talking about playing the guitar and how it was an orgasmic experience. And I was like, um, do you know what that word means? Like, do you, are you and I on the same page? And she's like, just like a great use. Um, and the way that we joke. And yes, are kids going to do that outside of an adult's presence? Yes. But what do we teach when we are there and we are overhearing that? Right. And, and I think, again, like, let's, let's do some social appropriateness, too, in that. Like, it's very different, especially if you're, like, a mentor or a parent mm-hmm. or a youth leader to make like that's what she said jokes mm-hmm. or to make sexual comments or sexual innuendos like kids need to see that you can be appropriate with sex mm-hmm. it's fine to joke about sex like i think that you know sex is extremely complicated and it can be super helpful to be funny and joke mm-hmm. about it and and all of that kind of lighten it up yeah but if that is all we're doing and if that is the mm-hmm. only co- in context in which we talk about sexuality or as an adult leader if you're silent when they're doing that yes that can be really destructive um without even meaning for it to be right, right. like kind of going to that question that we had earlier like what are some of the things that like maybe we're well-meaning but we're making some destructive patterns or, mm-hmm. or things like that is one of those things like i have no problem with joking about sex in the right context and content. I also spend most of my day talking about healthy sexuality and unhealthy sexuality. And I know that I can talk about that. Like I don't, and most of the people in my life know that Mm -hmm. they can come and talk to me about that. Right? Like I get questions all the Mm -hmm. time, which I think is completely appropriate. And you're glad they're asking you and glad they're asking and glad we're moving forward with that. So again, if we're just joking about sexuality, we can't have these deep, honest conversations. That's very one-sided and that's going to do uh-huh. some damage. If we're having these deep, heavy conversations and we're not able to make light about the fact that this is part of human existence, uh-huh. that creates a lot of shame too. Right. Right? Like that goes back to the purity culture of if we're always talking about it being dark and dirty and evil and super serious uh-huh. and... You know, you can get pregnant and ruin your life or you can, whatever, get someone pregnant and ruin your life, however that goes. One, I don't know that we should talk about pregnancy as a life ruiner. That's another topic mm-hmm. for another day. But uh, in and of itself, too, like when we're talking about responsible, healthy sexuality, we also have to recognize like there is some creativity and there is some fun with it. But we also have to recognize what that creativity and fun is. Mm-hmm. Is it demeaning? Is it shameful? Is it, you know, making jabs at people sexually? Because that's also not appropriate. Okay. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress.
Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.